Hello, you are now listening to the Modem Podcast, where we deconstruct, examine, and discuss deeply technical data networking and information technology topics. Sit back and relax while we fire up Dial D and the 9600 baud modem and connect to the Wildcat BBS. Hello and welcome to another IPv6 related uh, version of the uh, Modem podcast. Today we've got special, special guest. I'm channeling my uh, Chris Roberts from the Nine Club skateboarding podcast that no one will listen to. Uh, but we've got Ed Horley. Yeah, which of podcast. course means now that this turned into the special Ed session, <laughs> which is not not what we wanted. But whatever, it's all good. <laughs> We've got we've got we've got Ed of a little podcast that folks may or may not have heard of um, on the Packet Pushers Network. It's called the IPv6 Buzz. If you haven't checked it out, you should definitely check it out because it's worth checking out. And we're going to talk about something that is either the worst thing or the greatest thing in the world. I think it's the worst. And we're going to go into why that is because I've got opinions on things. But to keep me on track, as always, is Chris Cummings. And Chris Young. So the, what do we say it is? is the crises? The crises, yeah. Yeah. C2. C2. Yeah, C2. Command and control. C3. <laughs> I mean, I'm Chris Cummings, so I've got another C here. And you got one. Okay. <laughs> okay, that's something. I was going to go down a deep hole there, but I'm not going <laughs> to. So, yeah. Well, what, what, what are we talking about? What are we talking we're gonna about, talk about? We're going to talk about ULA today. All right. First, I want to know how you're doing, Ed. User licensing agreements? Is that? Yes. It's going to be an awesome. Yes. <laughs> I, want, I want to know how everybody's doing, starting with Ed. Ed, how are you doing today? Well, you know, uh, COVID recovery is always a, a fun enjoyment time, but uh, hey, I'm on the mend, so that's good. But, uh, mm. you know, working on V6 projects. So, you know, what else can I say? Uh, just spending the majority of my life advising clients not to use ULA. <laughs> <laughs> living the dream baby yes totally dream. not not to not to give away the ending but there you go <laughs> yeah so it's, don't so chris young <laughs> chris young how you doing i am doing excellent this is uh what, what do we say probably two years since i've last seen ed's uh lovely face yeah it's and, and, and had the opportunity to just kind of hang out so um yeah less travel but uh it's good to be here it is good to little be little IPv6. Too. I've got IPv6 actually running, you know, thread networks and all that good stuff. So it's uh, finally the year of IPv6, as far as I'm concerned. All right. Yeah. We did that podcast on thread. We'll link to that too. That's a good one. Um, fully V6 compliant and native application. That's very cool. So running rip for the win. Hey man, <laughs> oh, it's old as new again. At least it's, it's probably rip to a rip NG. But. I, I thought thread supported Ripple too, doesn't it? Um, who knows? It might it might do that for the mesh side, so I'll have to check. It, it, yeah, there's some some special stuff, which is hop based variant on total number of counts that is not actually Rip NG, but it is close oh, enough oh. to. <laughs> yeah, it's derivative. It's a distance vector. We'll call it that. Yeah. How you doing, Chris Cummings? Oh man, you know it is coming down snow here where I'm at. Uh, well, and where you're at, obviously, but yeah, I don't know. Going to go shovel snow after this, get a little, get a little workout in, uh, anything to get away from computers, I guess. <laughs> but yeah. I, I, overall I'm doing pretty good. Actually, I started a new job, uh, recently, 
I'm, I now no longer have or can call myself a network operator. I'm now a, I'm now a software weenie, as my boss, I think, would refer to it, being a software weenie. <laughs> You've moved <laughs> categories. Who moved my cheese? Yeah, my cheese is the network bigger. operator. He's, he's, he's yeah. automating the things at, at the yeah. same place. So same employer, just new. Uh, yeah. Destroy at scale. <laughs> yeah, I'm just going to break things faster. I was really getting tired of like how reliable networks are, you know, like I just feel like networks, they've kind of been running well for a while and they've had a good run. And I feel like we need to, we need to spice that up. Like so let's gonna, uh, throw some new stuff in here. You're going to deploy ULA at scale is what you're telling me. Yeah. 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 I'm just going to do it. I got a, I got a Perl script that uh, does that. It's uh, it's written with uh, a little bit of a uh, little bit of Ruby as well. Just for yep. Chris Young helped. He made the, all of the all the rights are done with SNMP sets. Oh, <laughs> oh no! <laughs> and <laughs> I mean, I'm done. They're all, one line, they're all one line regex, so it's all good. You know, it's going to work perfect every single time. It wouldn't be a podcast with Chris Young if we didn't get an SNMP jab in there. I know. I got I, it right I, away. Right oh, away. <laughs> you can call it out what it is, but you have no other choice. You'll still end up there in the end. At the end of time, cockroaches, Twinkies, and SNMP. <laughs> I think you're probably right. I would eat two of those things, neither of which are SNMP. <laughs> All right. Let's dive right into this. ULA. Boy, it's a thing. And I think, uh, you know, with the, you know, the, the, the surge of V6 that's been happening um, in the last probably 18 months or so, you know, I've seen a, a pretty big uptick in V6 deployments, V6 questions, just general V6-ness has been increasing. Um, and one of the questions that I get inevitably, especially from um, enterprise style, campus style networks where they're used to being able to use RFC 1918 spaces. They make that jump as soon as they read about it to ULA space. Um, so I think it's important to call out what that is and what it's for and what it's not and what it's not for. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to pass the torch over to Ed here. And I'm going to, I'm going to see, I'm going to, I want to hear Ed give us his take on those questions in his velvety recovery voice that he's got going on well, here. Well, Ed, is, isn't ULA just RFC 1918 for IPv6? I mean, uh, isn't that know, the end of the podcast? <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, it's a little bit more complex than that because ULA actually changed functions with an RFC update. And I actually think ULA was, was, you know, a little bit more practical before that, that RFC update happens. So maybe I give a little bit of history there uh, just to put things in context for everyone. So ULA from a starting standpoint is an address range that has been set aside as part of an RFC. Uh, it's FC00 colon colon slash seven. Um, and part of the RFC. If you wouldn't mind me interrupting, what does ULA actually stand for, for the people at home? Oh yeah. It's a unique local addressing. So it's designed to be used within a, you know, a non-global scoped, network, right? So it's not something that you're going to use to talk to the internet. It's not going to be something you use to, you know, functionally get out and, and even not translate to something on the internet. It's not, not really its function. Its function is to, you know, be bound locally as a, but unique within that local space, right? So you're not, so unlike, um, 
link local addresses, which you could have technically have the same FE80 colon colon one on every single router interface because it's just the default gateway, but it's only locally scoped. Uh, with ULA, you would have a unique one on every single interface because it has to be unique within that local scoping. Anyway, hopefully that sort of explains that <laughs> quick. Yeah, and I think that that description of it really hammers home why folks gravitate towards it when they're looking for an analog for RFC 1918. Space. Yeah, it, it looks very similar. Like from a, if you step back from the 30, 50,000 foot view and you're an architect and you're saying like, I want to take the same principles that I used because I think I'm an awesome V4 architect and I want to take the exact same awesome V4 architecture things that I already know and love and apply them to V6 because I'm lazy and I don't want to learn the V6 architecture. That's what you're going to do by default. Just it, That's just the natural habit. And I don't blame anyone for that. I get it. Like you're going to have to build something analogous to what you're already doing today. And, uh, and that's an easy lift. Uh, and so a lot of people see that one very quickly and, and they default to the like, oh, I should do what I do in V4. I should NAT all the things. Uh, I'm going to use a, a local address space within my network and uh, it'll be unique within, you know, just within our network topology of what we operate as operators. But to the rest of the public internet, I'm going to NAT to some other global global prefix. I'm going to do that at the same location that I'm used to doing that with V4, which probably means some sort of stateful firewall where I'll do NAT and stateful packet inspection at the same locations. And, and so they just see a lot of analogy there, so they go for it. Uh, but the reality is, is, is they probably were not doing their homework. They didn't read the RFC for ULI, which is uh, 4193. Uh, so they don't understand the binding and scopings of it. And then they also don't understand RFC 6724, which is the update to 3484, which was a major change about how ULA performs on host operating systems. And so that's what I guess my original point back <laughs> a few ago was, what's the RFC that changed how ULA operated? And that was RFC 6724. And that RFC actually dictates on host operating systems how source and destination address selection actually works for both protocols, V4 and V6, by the way. And that's actually important for ULA because what happened is we actually took the the preference of ULA and uh, and sort of uh, um, demoted it <laughs> in terms of usefulness. So before uh, it had a different weight characteristic or a different precedence characteristic within um, 3484 that actually meant that you sort of went IPv6 global unicast addresses, then you went ULA, then you went to a, a bunch of other things. So ULA was sort of an equal citizen to just regular IPv6. After 6724, we actually demoted it and it actually became less preferred than IPv4. So when you're going through and you're actually trying to select source and destination address locations to build a session from one host to the other, both operating systems are going to, are going to go through a, a set ordered list, right, of selecting things. And it's going to say, oh, I'm going to use global, global unicast address space first. And in this case, if you got ULA and you think it's going to use ULA next, it's not. It's going to go to IPv4 if you got IPv4 enabled. And then it's going to go to ULA. So if, even if you're publishing ULA addresses in your DNS, it doesn't matter. It's going to fall back to V4 before it goes and uses ULA, which effectively means ULA is, in any dual stack network, is functionally useless. It's not going to do anything. I mean, it might be there as a backup in case your V4 doesn't work. So it's, it's not really useful. And the reason I say this is a big structural mistake is that there are many people who want to do the analogy that we talked about, which is using V4 and V6 together, and we want to use the same analogy with RFC 1918 to ULA. So they'll deploy their internal network as ULA only, 
and say like, I'm going to use MPTV6 or I'm going to use NAT66 at the edge and I have my global unicast there. And they're like, yeah, I've dual stacked my network and I've got V6 working. You really don't. You have V4 operating. Nothing's going to switch over and use V6 with ULA because guess what? It's not preferred. So the only time you're ever going to see V6 traffic is, is not until all your V4 fails. Right. That, that actually and sounds worse than useless because it's consuming resources, consuming OPEX, engineering time, and it's never going to get used. And, well, and it doesn't I would get argue, you to the goal, right? Which is to adopt these things, right? Well, right. And, 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 and Chris, because there's more. No, oh. no. And, and I would also argue that at the end of it, you know it's not going to work because it never got tested. Yeah, it's that's that's one of the like big that's, structural that's problems. Even the worst. Yeah, yeah, that's even worse in in many ways because to even get to test ULA, you you have to functionally fail V four, which not a lot of shops are really willing to do. So it becomes this interesting use case. I mean, if if you if you want to test global unicast addresses because it's preferred in the OS, it's going to start using it right away. If it's not working for you, you simply just shut it off and it'll flip back to V four. Um, yeah, something important so, that you said there that I don't know that a lot of people actually understand or even really know is that there's a preference for how addressing is used within a given operating system. And right. there are ways to change it on certain operating systems. And then there are other operating systems where there is absolutely no way to change it. You know, or, or it's incredibly painful to do. Yeah. I mean, look, we right. can go in and do kernel kernel changes and, and you can recompile your kernel based off of the changes you do. So, right. But like on, on operating systems like Linux, there's a file. You right. can go and look at that file and that'll tell you like what order things are going to happen in. Mm-hmm. I assume there's probably ways to do that in Windows. I don't know of a way to do that in Mac. But like you said, if you've got global unicast uh, v6 addressing and ULA and IPv4, the order is not what you think it will be. Well, not what most people think it will be. Um, and, and I think that's a very important distinction to make for someone that needs to test their IPv6 because the easiest way to do that is go generate a ULA block and do that. Mm-hmm. What they don't understand is exactly what you just said. If you're well, dual stacking it, you're never going to test it. And they probably won't know that. It's right. hard to see unless you're looking for it. Yeah, and, and, you, and you had some great examples that you posted. So for those that don't know what, you know, Chris and Nick and I all participate in the V6 ops mailing list for the ITF. And, and we've been posting, you know, Nick posted some very useful sort of outputs to sort of demonstrate to folks what exactly was happening around ULA preferences versus global unicast addresses. Because even folks in the ITF don't necessarily believe the statements that we're making in regards to the, the functional, you know, problems, operational problems with ULA. I think architects get super excited about ULA because of the analogies with RFC 1918, some of the flexibilities around design, and I totally get it. I understand the attractiveness of it. But anyone who's an operator, like you look, you look at ULA and you look at what behaviors you're getting out of it, and that is not the sort of consistency you want running around in your network. Like there's no part of that that I want, you know, to, to rely on in order to make sure that I'm getting session connections going from one side of my network to the other. And um, to have operating systems making random decisions about that is even worse. What's really strange is because of the change from RFC uh, 3484 to 6724, if you have substantially older operating systems, they will behave differently (laughs) than the newer operating systems, which causes even more weirdness within your network. So it's, it's a real challenge. And so just avoiding ULA outright, you will always get consistent behavior if you use global unicast addresses. Every single time you're going to get consistent behavior. You're not going to get, you're not going to get that with ULA. To take it one step further, it's also application specific as written into the RFC. So 
different applications, if you say have, say you have a DNS address that has two quad A's, one's ULA, one's um, uh, GUA, and an IPv4 address, the application that you're using chooses which one of those to use in with regards to ULA. So it can get even less consistent based on application support. And I think that's one of the most broken things within the ULA design is that they made it flexible, but it's now incredibly inconsistent. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say that's the greatest challenge for operators. Super flexible. So architects love it, right? It's like, oh, look at all the things I can do. And if I want to override that, my application team can go and do that. Uh, I think for operators, it's, it's, uh, it's nothing but uh, you know, screaming nightmare and pull your hair out because because everyone's opening up trouble tickets saying like, why isn't this working the way I think it should work? And you have very little control. It's it's the same structural problem. And, and this was even admitted by both, um, um, you know, Dan Wing and, and Andrew Yachenkov who wrote Happy Eyeballs. Happy Eyeballs introduces a whole set of problems structurally around debugging what's going on with IPv6. It is awesome for all the things around making the end user experience fantastic for failing over between v4 and v6 and operationally making that as smooth as possible for the end user but for the operator you have not a clue what the heck is going on you don't know if the local os is doing something you don't know if it's you know the app like the browsers are doing something specific you don't know how it's gluing together the page if it's combining v4 and v6 which one it's preferring so the consistency side is very very difficult from a happy eyeballs uh, transition standpoint and, uh, and I, th and you know, that was recognized early on. It, it was an accepted, um, sort of, you know, structural problem with happy eyeballs. I just don't think people really realized that with ULA at the time, you know, ULA was sort of, you know, changed from a status basis in RFC 6724 for the operational challenges and hardships that, uh, we would all endure to try and get, um, you know, ULA to be something functionally useful. And, and, and I sort of question even, uh, the, you know, the functional usefulness of it now, given, given the, you know, just huge amount of address space you can have with global unicast addresses in v6 it's sort of like well why would you even bother with ula and i suppose we can try and answer that question um i don't know if i would have any good answers i mean there's very 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 few use cases around ula that that functionally and practically make sense um we can talk about those few that i think exist and almost none of them apply to global enterprises that are trying to deploy IPv6 right now. <laughs> so, I think the easy answer is transference of mental models from IPv4. Yeah, I yeah, I mean, one of yeah, 100%, Chris, you're exactly right. I mean, it's, it's, it is hitting the big easy button in terms of like, you know, you know, sort of changing over what your architecture is from one protocol to the other, without question. But beyond that, I want someone to argue, you know, I mean, someone take a devil advocate view. Who, what's the argument for why you would want to use GLA, right, Nick? I mean, I mean, I think if I was going to play the devil's advocate, I would say I'm going to run an IPv6 only network. And for some reason, I have a policy or something that says I cannot run global address space on my internal network. So I run ULA, no IPv4, and I do a translation box at the edge. Yeah, so that's an so that's an interesting point. So here I'm going to bring up a couple of things, and, and I want to I want to hear hear your response on that because uh, I don't necessarily disagree with your thought process on that. But I do have a question in regards to dealing with turning off IPv4. Uh, while that's possible to do in the Linux operating system, because they still keep them as, as dual protocol, um, uh, it's, uh, it's dual IP layer in Windows. And in Windows, it's not possible to turn v4 off, which means every single host operating system is still going to get an APIPA address and think it has working IPv4. And guess what? 
it's going to try and use all that APIPA be, way before it ever tries to use ULA. So you're back in the same situation where you're going to use your global unicast, then you're going to fail to IPv4, and then ULA is at the bottom of that list. And, uh, and so you're going to deal with all sorts of timeouts, operational issues, which gets back to my original point, operations nightmare, uh, because you can't turn it off for Windows. So where are we at? Like, and I understand the answer is, you know, don't run Windows, but at the same time, it's, 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 um, <laughs> uh, I think it's, I think it's, it becomes a very difficult situation operationally for big enterprises to, to say, you know, I'm, I'm never going to run windows. And so, I'm not yeah, I, I don't think that's realistic. Now I will fully admit that my experience with running V6 only, I have one windows machine in there and it works fine. I never have any problems with it. Um, but everything else is either Linux or Apple mm-hmm. and, or an embedded device. And sure. I don't really run into those problems. I have seen on the windows machine where it will happy eyeballs to mm-hmm. whatever it is that I'm trying to do. Now there's a NAT64 at the edge. But I will, again, admit that use case was a stretch. Um, I wouldn't do it that way. I would just do I would just do GUA addresses and create appropriate firewall slash you know, filtering at my edges. Yeah, route, and- route, routing rules. There's no requirement that you have to that you have to route all of your global unicast address space out to the public internet. Like there's right. zero requirement to do that. Yep. So just, you know, whatever, take your, you know, take your slash 32 and whack it in half. And the 33 is what you advertise to the outside world. And half the 33, you just don't route to the outside world and do whatever you need to. And you could yep. build a one for one for every single, you know, network you have in the 33, you have another one in the 33 that's not routable. I mean, that's perfectly doable also. So there's all yeah. sorts of options. Yeah. And, and I did a talk, gosh, like 10 years ago or so, where it was basically, it wasn't related to this, but it was essentially coming out to say like routing is the sledgehammer for a lot of these security policies. Mm-hmm. We've been using it in the WAN for a long time for black holing, but you can also do it for things like I don't want that to be globally routed. So yep. I don't globally route it. Um, and I think that's a very reasonable architecture to deploy. But, you know, as far as finding use cases for ULA, I have I've purposely used it. So mm-hmm. I've gone out of my way to actually build it into both networks that I'm using on a daily basis and in lots and lots of labs. And I really struggle to find any great use for ULA because it is so far down on the preference list that it's functionally useless. Right. I would agree with that. I, I would say there's a couple use cases uh, that makes sense operationally. Um, if you've got networks that are fully siloed and never going to touch the internet and never need to touch the internet, hopefully there are a couple that are running out there that people are doing this intentionally, like, I don't know, nuclear plant facilities, <laughs> things that should never be, be on the internet. Uh, I could understand, you know, maybe some specialty use cases for military applications where it makes sense for them and they're designing very specific networks around uh, the use case for it. Um, and, and interestingly enough, um, you know, uh, one of our... F- Favorite sideline topics. Uh, too bad Kevin isn't here, but uh, zero tier, zero tier is doing some interesting stuff with with ULA. Uh, strangely enough, in the FC space, as opposed to well, both the FC and the FD space. Um, but um, you know, I, th- I think that's the other space that you know for software developers. Is, there's definitely some uh, some interesting use cases with folks that are building solutions like zero tier that it it might operationally make sense for them to be able to to make use of ULA for the reason of I'm not trying to provide a global global unicast, globally accessible address space. I'm trying to provide something to allow people to build dynamic sort of peer-to-peer networks 
you know, on demand and uh, I need them to auto provision, auto address, and I need to have an address space to do that out of. And link local is really not the right answer in those use cases. And I don't want to have to go out and get a large, you know, whatever slash 24 from one of the RIRs to figure out how to build a large enough global, global unit. Yeah, that's a good point. I could see ULA being used uh, as a software developer to just as a placeholder for mm-hmm. making sure my IPv6 code actually runs. Yeah. To, to validate I think my even, code path. I think even then, though, it's still fraught with issues because unless you're developing for IPv6 only, it's still gonna cause issues and as much as i would love that like you know the use case you gave earlier about like an isolated nuclear plant or something like that like even now those are still gonna all have you know dual stack at best right there's still gonna be a four ipv4 component and then you know still exploitable is what you're telling me for for anybody who can't see the look on my face um i'm throwing (laughs) up in my mouth did you just seriously with a straight face say developers temporarily using something for testing (laughs) yeah right yeah i can now i I can now say developers using the address space to validate that yeah you can can write did you just say temporary yeah (laughs) you know that's going into production we've all done this enough right i think i think the other side is um there is there is global unicast address space that's been set aside for documentation purposes that you could use for the exact same test harness reason so i think you could use that i I think there needs to be additional address space that's sort of set aside and we can we can park and talk that talk about that here a little bit later but um uh, a slash 32 of documentation address space just isn't sufficient anymore uh, given where we're at and given what we're seeing enterprises do from an adoption standpoint for for their need requirements, even around public cloud, it's it's just not acceptable in terms of in terms of enough enough address space, at least at least my humble opinion. So if if I can take us back for a second, because mm-hmm. there's one thing that's flowing around in my head. Um, we've talked a lot about how RFCs have changed. We've all done this enough to know that the magic blessing of an RFC by the IETF does not ever mean it ever gets implemented anywhere. So it obviously has been implemented in some places. But the biggest concern that I've got right now after listening to this whole conversation is the, the complete lack of predictability about the design because old, old stack behavior, ULA behavior versus new stack ULA behavior. So mm-hmm. where, from what you guys are looking at, um, of what's actually in the wild developed and pushed out, where are we with, with that transition to the new style behavior, sub IPv4 yeah. versus, you know, the... The ULA IPv6 sandwich, if you will. Yeah. So, so just and just to sort of reassure you, RFC 6724 came out September 2012. So, pretty much all major operating systems current today are all 6724 compliant. It's a very small change between 3484. So, 3484 originally came out in February 2003. So, that's you know you wouldn't have seen anything predating that in terms of terms of sort of like v6 default behavior except for what you know you loaded in stack uh, and then 3484 came out you would have followed those guidelines past that uh, and then I, I can't think of anything that's currently doing 3484 except for if you have really old windows and linux systems laying around that were prior to maybe 2013 2014 or so from a behavior standpoint it got updated very very quickly because it was a pretty minor update for folks to do uh, on the OS side, and they actually pushed it out pretty quickly because there was a lot of act- flurry of activity going around around V6 in that 2014-2015 timeframe. If everyone sort of remembered, there was a lot of activity that was going on there from the service provider adoption basis and a bunch of others. So this this made it out into code uh, for operating systems pretty quickly. 
So I'm, okay. I'm not as nervous about that. I pretty much assume that everything is running 67.24 as a default behavior, just just as my standard now occurs, just sort of across across the board for any customers we're dealing with. I just think it's it's just structurally so broken now that it's not a practical tool to have in the tool belt unless you really have a very, very, very narrow use case around what you want to do with it. And um, and those use cases aren't compelling to me anymore. So I pretty much tell all our customers, um, you know, that's that's not the direction that they should be going. They should be using global unicast addresses because guess what? It's guaranteed to be globally unique. And you can do all the things that you would ever want to do with ULA with global unicast addresses, including not bothering to route them to the public internet. Like that's a perfectly feasible right. thing to do. So you're in the exact same position as, as you were with ULA. You just are guaranteeing that you're globally unique and that you can assign a single, if you want, a single global unicast address to an interface and not have to deal with a global unicast, a ULA, a link local, uh, you know, a solicited no multicast address and like how many other addresses do we want to add on there just to make your life more complex. So I, I think from a simplicity standpoint, I just prefer to use global unicast addresses everywhere for every purpose that you can possibly think of. It just logically makes more sense to me and the topology makes a lot more sense when you're looking at it. It's just much more. Yeah, popular. I'm with you on I'm, I'm with you on that one, Ed. Like, I mean, the whole point of IPv6 was give us more address. Not not the entire point. Okay, I'm not one of those people that says it's just V4 with more bits. It's it's a lot more than that. But like, one of the main benefits of V6 is we have so much address space. And that's the huge paradigm shift between V4 and V6, right? Like, yep. I know so many people, when they first, you know, start getting into the world of V6, they go, oh, wow, well, I don't want to put a slash 64. Like, how big of a subnet should I put on that interface? You know, well, I might have 200 hosts. Well, okay, well, maybe I put, well, I could I could do like a slash, <laughs> yeah, slash 120, or I could go a little bit bigger, but, you know, I don't want, well, how big does my broadcast domain have to be? And then, like, it's like, no, 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 no that's not the point. Slash 64s. And there is, and there is like, no broadcast domains. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> That's yeah the other exactly. Part. Yep, yeah. exactly. It's just, there is so much of this old like IPv4 mindset that's applied to v6 yeah. and but address scarcity is a big one. Yeah, I get it. It's, it's hard to move away from that. We call it v4 thinking. That's what, yeah. that's what we call it internally is we call it v4 thinking. And it's very hard to break away from v4 thinking because it's the only way operational, unless you were super old, like, you know, uh, some of us on here that, you know, remember our IPX days and, SNA and ATM and everything else. Um, but I, I just don't think there's a proper analogy about, about how significantly different V4 is from V6. It, it's hard for people to grasp. You're really only worrying about networks. You don't worry about how many hosts you have in, an, in a given segment at all. It's just not an issue that you even think about. You just worry about how many networks you want to operate. And even then, it's hard for people to fathom how many networks you can really operate with the amount of address space that people really should be getting and asking for. I think that's the other great mistake is, is people just don't ask for enough address space. And then they want to solve the problem by saying like, oh, we got assigned a, you know, a, you know, a, a 40. That's not enough address. I, I get done doing my network build. It's not enough. So I'll deploy ULA instead and, 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 do, and do network address translation to the global address space that I do have. So I solved the same, I solved the problem the same way. Instead of going back to, you know, Aaron or whoever and saying like, hey, I need more than a 40. Give me a 36 or give me a 32, right? And give me more address space. More than likely, they they rounded up to the next largest nibble boundary for you anyway in terms of a reservation. So it's probably pretty easy to ask for that. But everyone goes in asking for far too little space. And I can give you pragmatic examples of that. Like we were working with a very large SaaS provider and, uh, you know, their initial allocation was a whopping 36, a 36 from one of the other parts of their organization. 
and this is the corporate network side that we're dealing with, their production side is entirely different. And their production team handed their corporate team a 36. We got done doing all the work for them in, in the analysis. And we came back and said, you need a, you need a 28, <laughs> right? And the reason why is for bring your own address space for public cloud, for, you know, all the IOT stuff, for all the, all the build configurations you want to do for container networking, for all these other related items that are just future planning, you know, 10 years down the road, whatever, you know, 30 years down the road, they need to plan for. I'm like, yeah, you need a 28. And we went back and resubmitted all the paperwork and, and, you know, Aaron agreed. They're like, yeah, that's all legit. That totally makes sense. We're going to give you a 28. So they went from a 36 to a 28. <laughs> in terms of probably software. in about a week usually that kind of stuff if you've got the paperwork done it's not yeah it took like a bit longer. It, it, the, surprisingly enough the thing that took the longest was was for them for their finance team to get around to actually issuing a purchase order <laughs> for Aaron to get stuff so we sat on it for a month and a half while waiting for all the paperwork on the backside even after all the ticket was actually agreed to and everything else so you're right Nick it didn't take that long from a technical standpoint it took a lot longer to get the actual you know approval and and, and, you know, the VPs to sign off because Aaron requires, you know, like executives to sign off on, on your statements and yeah. everything else. So, but yeah, I've seen, I've seen V6 requests. This is a tangent, but it's interesting. I've seen V6 requests into Aaron turn around in 24 hours. Yeah. If it's literally if it's, 24 hours and here's your allocation. So yeah, it's not it, hard to do. You, you have to be able to articulate it and you have to know what your use cases are and you need right. to do some thinking about it. And I think that's you know, to the, the great folly of everyone. This is where IPv4 thinking is going to absolutely kill you. Um, it's it's going to kill you because you don't understand what to actually ask for because you, you haven't had to go through the exercise of doing that. And I, and you, everyone on the, everyone on this podcast has gone through the V6 exercise and probably is, you know, much more free thinking about that. Uh, I would say the master majority of my, of our V4 colleagues are, are going to be very stymied with that. And if they haven't gone through some sort of process with other individuals around that to sort of open up their eyes about what's possible and what, how they should be thinking differently. It's going to be a struggle. And then they're going to default back to, I don't, I, I can't ask, I, I don't have a legitimate reason to ask for more than a 48, right? Or something ridiculous like that or a 40. And then I need, uh, but I need more networks than what that's providing. Uh, so clearly I can't use my global unicast address space the way I want to. So guess what? I need to NAT translate and I need an address space to use internally and they fall back to ULA. And here we are again talking yep. about the exact same subject as opposed to addressing the problem on the front side, which is really you just didn't ask for enough address space and, and probably significantly under asked about how much address space you really need to be able to, to acquire. Yeah. And I think that's a good dovetail into the next thing, which is um, you kind of touched on this, Ed, where, you know, some of the things that we're doing now don't have the appropriate resources assigned to them to be able to successfully and efficiently perform these tasks. And I'm, I'm talking about two different things, right? You, you touched on the, the uh, documentation space. That's a slash mm -hmm. 32. Yeah. For anyone that's running a network, like a service provider backbone or a large international company, you may have something larger than a slash 32. You might have a 28 or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, 24. How, how are you going to write documentation for something that's bigger than a 32? Yeah, you can't. Yeah. Without using space that's basically being, you know, without squatting on unassigned space mm -hmm. uh, it, 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 inside, you know, the, the entire block of 128-bit addresses, 
Yeah, I, I essentially cannot do this. Yeah, I, I agree, and and I would like to see a larger allocation. Whether that's you know the two thousand one DB eight ex, ex, extended to to be larger than a thirty two in some capacities, so that we can we can really talk about documenting more complex network topologies. I would prefer to see additional prefixes so that you can see you, you can very quickly recognize different you know documentation prefixes that could be utilized in different ways to represent different networks in a more unique way, whether we reuse the old six-bone address, the 3FFE. So when you're looking at a network topology diagram, you can quickly look and see 2001 DB8 over here and see 3FFE over there, and that's supposed to really represent a different network altogether, maybe a different service provider, different backbone, uh, yep. different different partner appearing network. Uh, I feel the same way for, I, I think we need at least three of those because you know it seems like that's the sort of industry default standard just have at least three unique unique address spaces to do something you you know there just to be able to identify within a page or a diagram or or even uh you know so, sort of sample configurations that's that's what we, i think we have that v4 as well right yeah we do v4 is just such small address space that no one uses well, it because yeah. it's, it's pretty much functionally useless right you know it's 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 a slash 24s there's a bunch of slash 24s no one has just a small slash 24 network trying to stitch together so functionally everyone just uses rfc 1918 space to express their documentation even though technically that's not what it's there for right um, i'd be so bold as to say that most people don't even know that that documentation prefix exists in ipv4 can you name one of them what is it 192.0.2.0 slash 24 i think is one yeah of them? yeah like, that's the one i use and i was i actually just had to switch out of it and i can't use rfc 1918 for hashtag reasons but mm -hmm. i had to switch out of that because uh <laughs> ran out of space for a lab that i mm -hmm. that i've built um so yeah it's, yeah. it's totally also, i believe that's also widely deployed for like on routers for black hole routing purposes. If you go and read <laughs> documentation for how to yep. build a black hole routing configuration in a router, it's almost always going to use 192.002. Yeah. So if you're labbing up something that, you know, has, you know, black hole routing and you're following the BCP for black hole routing next hops, which uses that space. And, you know, like, yeah, for V4, it's just a mess. And I, I feel like with V6, we've kind of gotten ourselves, not to the same degree, but in a similar way, we've gotten ourselves well, there we, where... I think we just artificially constrain ourselves. We have, real exactly. we have real constraints of V4. Like this is... Exactly. You know, there's actual address limitations and, and how much space we're trying to recover. And there's all sorts of weird proposals out there for trying to, you know, carve up a, and claw back address space that you probably is, you know, you know, so polluted, I would never want to claw it back. But we just recorded on that recently. Yeah. Actually. <laughs> but I think the reality, the practical reality, is is that is that uh, we we absolutely have the address space available in V six. It's just the onus is on us to go make the request as operators. And this is where I feel differently than some of the peers who are writing maybe on the other side of the ITF, who are really much more architect architecture related people. Um, and huge respect to them. They've done a great job with the protocol and getting it this far. And 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 so you know, I'm I'm not going to spill speak ill will about any of that. Um, you know, I wouldn't have a career without that. So, you know, I, you know, you know, you know, God bless them all for, for spending the time and effort to do so. But I think from the operator standpoint, like we have a unique opportunity to step in and really say like, we need more, uh, address space to be able to represent a bunch of different things. I think labs are super important. We need to be able to have a more of a, and that's the second one that we're talking about documentation than lab address space. And they serve different purposes. And that's why there are two different proposals out there to talk about documentation space versus lab space. And there's some unique opportunities within lab space to do like pre-allocations or company-wide registration allocations uh, to do things that look a little bit more like how we, you know, assign MAC addresses, right, to manufacturers to be able to utilize, to, you know, 
publish and, and, and push things out there. So we have unique, you know, ethernet capabilities on a network. I think there's an opportunity to do something very similar within the lab address space uh, to assign stuff out to companies that actually want to be able to guarantee that they could spin and operate a given lab. Like Chris, you work at Zscaler and Zscaler decides they want to spin a lab inside of AWS and they want to guarantee for all their customers they can hit the button, deploy it. They're going to use the same address space over and over again in a lab prefix space. But it's guaranteed that if they want to run Zscaler with, you know, whatever the other adjacent lab that they want to run with it, Okta, whatever else, you'll never have a conflict. It'll always work across from that lab address space to the address space they want to use for something else along with a service endpoint for additional lab that they want to use there uh, inside of AWS. It'll all work together with that address space guaranteed because Zscaler actually owns that portion of that lab address space, right? It's assigned to them for that specific purpose. You're going to see the address over and over again. That's okay. And you have to manage your lab address space, but it guarantees uniqueness for deployment of services regardless of which public cloud you use, regardless of which private cloud on-prem you might have for an agent, things like that, that guarantees your customer can run this lab demo without, you know, having the problem that we all have today with IPv4, which is, well, I used the 10 dot address space and it's the exact same 10 dot address space that Cisco deployed on. It's the exact same, you know, lab address space that, you know, Palo Alto deployed. And they're like, none of my labs will work together because I have to nap between all of them or I have to run them as independent space for all of them because they're all using the same address space over and over again, which is the exact problem that we have in public cloud today. Everyone deploys their VPCs in AWS and they hit the button with the exact same 10 dot address space over and over and over again. It's whichever one was documented in the, you know, in the last, you know, deployment guide from AWS or the most popular one that everyone Googles, right? And, and, yeah. and the other thing too, to kind of and loop you back around to ULA is that you can't, use ULA for this lab space because all the reasons we just said, it's mm -hmm. depreferenced. It's not going to work the way you think it will work if you're running dual stack. If you're running, uh, you know, uh, IPv6 only, sure, maybe if you don't have any Windows systems in the mix and all of the operating systems and specialty devices that you're labbing up actually honor it correctly. But ULA just doesn't work for, for labbing for so many reasons because nine out of 10, you know, people that are going to spin up a lab that need to test V6 are going to be doing dual stack. Nine out of 10, maybe. And, and they're going to take know, whatever, really and they're going to, yeah. Yeah. And, and they're going to take the default settings for whatever, whoever set that, that lab preference configuration yep. up, which is one of the reasons I'm advocating for lab address space, because if they've got address space assigned to them and they know it's going to be unique within that lab address space, because it's assigned to a company. And as long as that company is managing what's going out there as pre-built labs, it pretty much guarantees that all the manufacturers, can, <coughs> excuse me, can have address space that actually is non-conflicting with any of their other either partners or competitors. And it also guarantees that if someone wants to run a, you know, proof of concept lab and test against all the, you know, whatever, um, you know, whatever suite of, of applications, they can guarantee that that lab address space, all of them are available. They can test against all of them at the same time and flip back and forth or have them all operating at the same moment in time. And that's a unique proposition that we don't have available to us at all in IPv4. That's just not, it's just not possible in the same way to know that we can spin up a set of resources and not have it conflict. Um, otherwise, you're, you're back to the drawing board. You're going to build different VPCs and build NAT configurations between all your VPCs if you're running in AWS or in the VNets, whatever else, however else it's going to look. So that, that's, my, that's my quick advocacy for, you know, for the proposal for the lab address space. I think the documentation address space is a more obvious like duh that just makes sense so i don't know why people would argue against that one but um 
you know, we, you know, yeah. who knows? We'll see how and, well. And if, if if the listeners want to know more about this, you know, there's been over the last year some active discussions on and off on the uh, on the IETF V6 Ops uh, mailing list. Easily searchable. You don't have to join the list. You can kind of go and read. And and it is a little bit of self promotion. It's it's largely been Ed, myself, and Chris, um, and a couple other folks. Kevin, Kevin uh, Myers, uh, frequent uh, co-host here. Yeah, Russ is well. through. Yeah, Russ White as well. Yeah, Russ has been right. And Russ, Russ White. Yeah, I mean, th- there's a lot of there's a lot of people involved. People that you you know listeners probably know who they are. Um, but you know, there's so there's at least some folks behind it. And uh, you know, if you want to get involved with that, great. If you just want to read it and throw tomatoes at us, that's cool too. You know, just the soft tomatoes, please, not the hard green ones. Yeah, not that. <laughs> so, a couple couple of things in defense of using uh, RFC nineteen eighteen address space in documentation. Having been involved in documenting for vendors, you're lucky you got that much. Yes. Yeah. No, I, um, I, I get so, it. You know, <laughs> it's, but it's a short. But that's a shortcoming or a constraint of V four. Yeah. It's it, we don't have that constraint of V six, so it's ridiculous that we're you know, artificially limiting ourselves in that way. There's just no reason for it. So, so as, as someone who like, I'm, I'm at best a dabbler in V6, right? I'm not, I'm not engaged daily and operating like you guys are, but one of the challenges that, him from the podcast, <laughs> well, no, but I think this is important, right? Cause one of the challenges is that, you know, that the temptation of the mental model of, of ULA from an IPv4 perspective is that I think it's, it's exceptionally hard just as human beings to reason about the size of the numbers that we're talking about. So we perceive it to be a scarce resource. So like, I'm not going to ask for anything because I know there's no way I would have got that in an IPv4 world. Like I'm lucky if I can get public address space. Like, you know, when, when I was a young lad, I I personally could have got probably a slash 24 Mm -hmm. when we first started doing this and, and like, you know, get it from internic, get the email from Florida or wherever the email, Uh, the the letter from, from Florida. Like, so if I apply that same, like, how do I create the new mental model when I can't even reason about the size of the numbers that we're talking about? So I think that the the temptation is both. Yeah, that's fair. And I think my argument back on that is, is you have to spend a little time educating yourself so that you, you get, you get comfortable with, with what V6 is there. And I think to Chris's point earlier is, um, you know, it's, it's, it's more than just address space, right? It's more than just more address space, I guess, in terms of, in terms of that side of it. Um, and I don't even worry about the address space discussion anymore. I I just don't like talking about it because it's, it's totally pointless in V6. We should only be talking about how, how many networks you want to operate. That's it. That's the only discussion that should be going on. And then based off of that, it should be, how many places can you perceive that you need to operate networks in? Public cloud, IoT, maybe SaaS providers. Who do you want to hand address space for? And here's a really good example of something that's really interesting. As a complete side note, maybe something we, we wrap on. But um, happen to know an organization, their security team is, is now familiar with the V6 project that's going on. Uh, very large, very, very large public SaaS provider that absolutely everyone knows. And they're looking at this as an opportunity to say like, you know, we don't like that when we spin up a new resource in AWS, we get some random elastic IP that gets assigned that ha- we don't know the reputation behind. Like we know it belongs to Amazon now, but we don't know what previous customer used this thing, right? It's tainted. It could have been used for something nefarious. It could have been used for, you know, by a secu- another sec- by a security company to do probes for 
stuff against China? Like, who knows? Like, you, you just don't know what it was used for. You have no, you have no idea what the reputation is, right? And they're like, there's baggage, right? There's, there's, a, there's a ton of baggage, and it's, it's only getting worse over time, as opposed to what you can do with V6, which is I'm going to bring my own address space. So I'm going to do bring my own address space, and every provider that we work through, they will use our address space. We will allocate the address space specifically for the purpose of our services that we will utilize and advertise from that, whether it's SaaS, whether it's public cloud, whether it's a partner. And we own the complete reputation of that address space because we own it and end it's been allocated to us as an organization. You can look it up in Aaron, you know, it belongs to us. And then we will swip it over to whoever's required to operate it on our behalf. The only way those addresses get handed out is for our services that we run and operate as an organization. And if you think about how powerful that is from a, just a concept basis of what you own reputation wise on the internet, that's a huge difference versus what you, you can't do that in V4. That is an impossibility to do in V4 today. It is not possible to do. It's a hundred percent possible to do in V6. And I, and, 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 I, and I challenge people to, you know, think through problems like problem spaces like that becomes very, very interesting. There's very unique things that you can do with V6 to help you solve these related problems that are, you know, just, just even like, if you want to talk about address space, just, uh, doing transactions, you know, you assign a single slash 64 to a server and let it use as many addresses for as many transactions as it wants to do. You're never going to run out of addresses on that host ever. And we can do the fast math for you. Let's say you use 10 million addresses a, a second and never reuse that address. Out of a 64, how long is it going to take you to burn through your slash 64? And this maybe helps with the math for you, Chris. It's going to take you 58,000 plus years to burn through the 64 at 10 million addresses a second on a single slash 64 that's assigned to a host. So think about well, that. I, I don't yeah, think I've, I've done the math a few times, but my reflex is not that. Right. I and, guess. And, and, yeah, I get yeah. it. And, and so that's why I try and make this like a real world, like 10 million a second yeah. out of this, out of the server, which is probably not even possible to do. Like, I don't know that you could open 10 million a second, discard them, open another 10 million a second, discard them and, and continue doing that like forever uh, and have that many transactions go on. But, but it, this is a, you know, it's, it's just a, a thought exercise. How many people believe yeah. their data center is going to be here in a thousand years? How many people believe their data center is going to be here in a hundred years? So 58,000 years versus your hundred years that your data center might be on the planet. Like, why are you worrying about how many addresses you have? Stop worrying about that. Right. Because yep. how many 64s do you have in a 48 that you should be assigning to a site or even just a small data center? You know, 48 would be great for a data center just to have as a small, small, medium sized data center. You got 65,536, right. That you can assign out of your 64s. And even that, I would argue, is is you know forty eight for a single data center is probably maybe maybe not enough, given depending on what your design and operations are. Well, take that number and multiply it by fifty eight thousand years, and now you know how much you can operate on every single host with never repeating an address again. I don't know. I, I, I it's just a different way of thinking about it, and this is why I say you worry about how many networks you operate, not how many hosts you have. And, and you don't worry about functionally even how many networks you need to operate from an asking perspective, because even the largest of the largest are starting to realize that they can ask for sufficiently large enough address space. I mean, we're, we're working with most of the global 150 as a company. And I can tell you that the asked and, and the direction, the direction has changed dramatically in terms of what they're going for. We're completely off topic from ULA, but you know, anyway, 
I don't think we are because I think that this ties it and wraps it up pretty nicely with a nice little bow in that a lot of the reason that folks look at ULA, at least at a very high level, is because they have a V4 mentality of I need to make sure that I'm conserving resources and I need to make sure that I'm using private resources where I'm using private resources well we kind of went through and discussed what doesn't work with ULA and why they are not an analog for 1918 space. And you just very succinctly described why, you know, thinking about resource allocation with a V4 mindset kind of doesn't make a lot of sense in, in V6. And so why not use global address space? Like there's no reason to use ULA. You can just not route the global address space and you'll get consistent behavior. And you don't have to worry about, oh, I don't know how many public IPs I've got left over. And, you know, I've only got a slash 27 at this location and, you know, blah, blah, blah. I think that that's a nice, that's a nice little uh, rope-a-dope, whatever you want to call it, back to the point. Closing the loop. Closing the loop. Well, my my beginning statement and my end statement are the same. Don't use ULA. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I think you made that case. Yeah, I hope so. I think, I, did too. I, we, I think we asked the audience, so like, hey, you guys give us feedback, like, let us know. You got a ULA use case. We definitely want to hear about it because, man, I, I, I struggle to find one that really makes a lot of sense. So if you got if you got one that, that makes a tremendous amount of sense, I definitely want to hear about it. Um, yeah, uh, and I'll give personal. everyone uh, Chris Cummings' personal cell phone number. You can call and tell him uh, what those use cases are. <laughs> Make sure to be really late at night yeah. or early in the morning. Uh, and uh, <laughs> Yeah, that's how we'll that's how we'll do the communication. No, all serious. Tweet tweet at us. Yeah, tweet so at us. This is a good stopping point, right? Tweet yeah. at us. Tell us what your use cases are, because we genuinely want to know. Because, like I said, there's several of us working on some of these drafts that, you know, sort of circum, you know, they they're meant to address some of these shortcomings. Um, and the more use cases we have that we understand in both directions, the better off that we'll be. So, if yeah. you want to tweet at us. Let's tell everybody where they can do that and where they can find us. Ed, wh- where can people find you? Uh, uh, Twitter is at eHorley. So uh, that's pretty straightforward. Uh, for the blog, uh, I blog occasionally at uh, howfunky.com. So um, <laughs> so you can you can catch me on howfunky.com or you can just uh, hit me uh, uh, at eHorley. That's the best way to get a hold of me. Also check out his podcast. IPv6 buzz, totally worth your time. Lots and lots of great info on Thanks. there. We um, try. It's it's uh, my my co-hosts are far more entertaining and and knowledgeable than I am. So uh, the, you know, shout out to Tom Coffin and Scott Hogue, uh, the two brilliant minds of of the podcast. I'm this. I'm just there for the sexy voice. So <laughs> <laughs> no, it's always a good one. I, I I enjoy that podcast quite a bit. And when I'm up to date, it makes me mad that there aren't new ones. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. So Chris Cummings, where can we find you? Yep. You can find me on the Twitter at cranky net man. Uh, and my cell phone address is two one seven. Oh wait, that's Nick's. Oh, <laughs> hold on a sec. Okay. Uh, hold yeah. On. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you can find my IP six, IPv six address at 2001. No. Uh, yeah. My blog at slash six, four dot tech, uh, modem dot show. I'm online. And last, but certainly not least. Chris Young, where can we find At Netman you? Chris on Twitter. And I keep paying for the blog and occasionally, you know, I look at it and we wax philosophically as to, you know, when, when I will get back to that. Um, 
and just look for more interesting things to to find to write about again. It's uh, I think the world is finally starting to get exciting again. So I'm looking to perhaps dust it off. So the blog would be control issues with a K dot net. And uh, yeah, I'm around. Yeah, I hear you on the blog thing. I looked um, yesterday evening and I have not written anything since the beginning of 2021. <laughs> so right about the time that we started doing this podcast, the, uh, you know, the blogging, which is at for, you know, forwardingplane.net is the blog. Um, there's some good info on there. A lot of it's dated at this point, but uh, hasn't gotten a lot of TLC since we started the podcast. Um, and you can find me, I'm Nick Braulio on, on the Twitters at, uh, at forwarding plane, of course, modem.show or, you know, yeah. Chris, you want to say one more thing? Oh, he had his hand no. up. I thought he had his hand up, but no. Nope. I was waving to thanks, Ed because he's like, thanks to Ed for coming talk. by. And it's, uh, it's always good me. to hang out with cool people. Yeah, thanks man. Thanks, thanks for slumming a little bit with us, Ed. <laughs> I always love talking to my V6 peeps. It's all nice. good. It's all good. All right. Well, thanks for tuning in, everyone. And uh, we'll, we'll catch you catch on the wire. Thank you for tuning in to the Modem Podcast, where yesterday's modems are today's transponders. For more information or to request a topic, please visit modem.show.